Turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. And I will be reading beginning in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give eternal life to them. And they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let's pray. God, I just thank you again for your your gracious and merciful work to save us and to keep us until that day that Jesus would return. Lord, we thank you for your word and all that you have given to us in it to reveal yourself, to lead us, Lord, into all that is true and good. And I pray that again our hearts would just be um, confident, Lord, in your word and in yourself. And in this time together, God, that, that our faith would be just further built up and established in the truth, God, of what you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen. You be seated. <clears throat> Appreciate Connor filling in for me last week while Patsy and I were um, recuperating from um, our week down in Costa Rica where I was teaching. And um, before I get started, though, I, I um, have been um, forgetting to remind you of um, a trip to Israel. This is a little brochure that we've put together. I mentioned that a number of weeks ago, and now we are already coming up on a deadline. I, um, we have um, a friend of mine that I was in seminary with will be heading this up, and we're going to be taking the second-year students at his hill and any others that would like to come, but space is limited. In fact, we only have slots for eight more. So if you would really like to come, we would really like to have you. It says on here that the dates, the dates are March 6th to 17th. It doesn't have a cost um, because he was still working on airfares and that, but it'll be $3,500 for the 12-day trip. So let me know if you're interested. Um, speak directly to me. And there, this is a whole um, outline of what we'll be doing from day to day and pictures and things. And uh, it'd be great to have you um, join us for that. March 6th to the 17th. So we've been looking at um, the subject of, of bibliology, um, how we got our Bible, and this is the eighth uh, message and the last on, on this series. And I look back at my records, we started back at the end of July, already the 1st of October, hard to believe, and we've looked at the topics of revelation, inspiration, and infallibility, inerrancy, the evidences of inspiration, illumination, accommodation, canonization, and now the, today, and this is the one where we're really back in the weeds, the thick grass, and that is the preservation of Scripture. And so this is probably the hardest topic, um, the preservation of Scripture, because on one level it doesn't look as though it's necessarily been preserved. I think that, that the evidence is clearly there that what 
when, that the Bible is the inspired word of God. That God revealed, God made his actual words known to human authors. They wrote those words down, not as a form of mechanical dictation, because we know that God used their vocabularies, their personality, to write down his words. And so it is accurate to say this is 100% the work of God, and it is 100% the work of men. There is a dual nature here, just as there is with Christ himself, 100% God and 100% man. The same is true for the Word of God, 100% God's Word, 100% the words of men. And it was written, being written by God, it had to have been written without error, because God cannot err. And so we, we have, that's where the doctrine of inerrancy, as we call it, comes from. But when we step back and, and hear what the critics say, one of their chief arguments attacks on Scripture is the truth that we have no original writings today. 66 books, and of those 66 books, there is not even a fragment that is original from any of the 66 books. So every word of our Bible is, is um, put together from manuscripts that we have available, none of which are original. And so the critic looks at that and says, even if you can argue that the Bible was originally given by God, you do not have an original Bible. So how can you have any confidence in it? So that's what today's message is about. And um, there's a, so much here. This is where it's talking about getting into the weeds. And I thank the Lord for those men that I think they're, I don't know what happened to them when they were young. Their mother threw them down the stairs or something. But um, they have, they, they, their brains just work differently. And, and I thank God for them. And they, they love looking at the ancient manuscripts, cataloging them, classifying them, analyzing them. And I'm just going, put me to sleep. You know, but, but they thrive off these things. And there are scholars, I mean, truly brilliant men and women who have spent lives, their whole life, and, and many of them have done this, just looking at the manuscripts, cataloging them, numbering them. And they have stepped away, even people who are not Christians, they step away from it all and say there is nothing like the Bible. In sheer number of manuscripts, in the reliability of the manuscripts, there is nothing. Because see, what, what the critics don't want to tell us, or at least remind us of, is there is no ancient book that there are originals of. None. And so there is no original of the Bible, and there is no original of any other book. But when it comes to the other books, everybody says, well, the copies we have are accurate representations of the original. But when it comes to the Bible, the critic says, not so sure about that. So what I want to do, just to start out this message, I've got a, a little short video. So this is going to blow your minds. This is twice now I've used the overhead screen in this in this. Um, don't think it's going to become a habit. But it's a little sh less than three minute video that I saw when Patsy and I went to see um, Noah's Ark up in, up in um, where it is, Kentucky. And so this guy did a, does a very good job in just a couple minutes summarizing the issue 
of the manuscripts that we have and what really boils down to the doctrine of the preservation of Scripture. Okay? So the guys are going to show it and watch carefully. Obviously, it's very now, authoritative because he's a tall, bald-headed guy. There are a lot of differences between those New Testament manuscripts. Or these differences what we call variants. And they say there's tens of thousands of these variants. But the reason there's so many of these variants is because there are so many manuscripts. So what the critic is trying to do is take a great strength for the reliability of the text and turn it into a weakness. But here's the great thing about this. Because we have so many manuscripts, we can compare and contrast those. We know where those differences are, we know what they are, and we know that they're really insignificant and rarely do they have any bearing on the meaning of the text. In fact, even Bart Ehrman, the leading textual critic today, an agnostic, says that essential Christian beliefs are not affected by the textual variants in the New Testament. That's not the right video. Yeah, same guy. You may have gone down too far on that page, but you know, it's the one that are at the top. No. That's not it either. If you have to go back on the internet, it's, it's arkencounters.com slash beans. There you go. Three minds working back there, so. This is why I don't do a lot of this kind of stuff. You're wondering. <laughs> he lost his head. having a buffer? Is that what's going on? I actually know that word. Coffee beans illustrate a major problem with that argument. And what we're going to do is look at the manuscript evidence for some ancient writings compared to the manuscript evidence for the New Testament. That is, we're going to be looking at the handwritten copies made before the days of the printing press for each of these works. For example, for Tacitus, he wrote his famous work called The Annals around the year AD 100. And the earliest copy we have for that comes from about 750 years later. So there's a 750 year gap between when it was written and our earliest copy. And how many copies do we have? Just two. So let's put two beans in this cup to represent those manuscripts. For Plato's dialogues, there's a 1200 year gap and we have just seven copies. For the histories by Herodotus, there's a 1300 year gap with just nine copies. And we have 10 copies of Caesar's Gallic Wars after a 900 year gap. Now very few people question whether we have the original message of these writings, yet they constantly attack the Bible on this point. And yet the manuscript evidence we have for these is so minimal and the gap between when they were written and when their earliest copies come from is enormous. 
So what about the New Testament? Well, it was written in the first century AD, and the earliest manuscript evidence we have for it comes within 50 years of that time. Now, how many copies do we have? Well, there are nearly 6,000 Greek New Testament manuscripts, and they average about 450 pages each. Looks like I should have used a bigger cup. But you know what? That's just the Greek manuscripts. When we count the other languages, like Latin, Coptic, and Armenian, there's another 20,000 manuscripts. As I mentioned earlier, critics and skeptics rarely question whether we have the original message of these writings, and yet they frequently attack the Bible on this point. You know, it really just shows their bias. But when we look at the evidence before us, we see that their arguments really don't amount to a hill of beans. So I hope you got the gist of what he was saying there is that, and, and the thing, there's a couple of points there. One is just the vast number of Greek manuscripts that we have, over 6,000. And also the manuscripts that we have from other languages, Latin and Coptic in particular, another 20,000. And there is no other ancient writing that has anything about it like that. Now, why is that significant? Because the more manuscripts that are out there, that provides greater basis for comparison. And so it'd be like if I um, wrote a piece on a piece of paper, a letter, and I gave everybody in the room that, that letter to copy, but then we destroyed the original. The more people that are in this room, then the more copies that we have that we can compare to see what the original letter was. Every one of us is going to make some mistake, undoubtedly, in copying that letter. But the more manuscripts you have, then the more basis you have for making a comparison so that you can have a sure knowledge of what the original was. And so there again, there is nothing else like the Bible in the sheer volume of manuscripts that are available. But also the age of these manuscripts. And he said that some go back within 50 years. Actually, New Testament scholars say they go back even further than that, that there are fragments that go back as early as within 25 to 35 years of the original. With every other book, ancient book, it is hundreds, in some cases, in over a thousand years between the earliest copy and the original. And so God truly has preserved His Word. We don't have the originals, but what we have, we can have absolute confidence that it is true to the original. We know exactly where the problems are. So it's not as though we hold this book and say, well, I don't know if God, you know, really said that or not. But because we have so many manuscripts, we actually know exactly where there is a variant. Now, variant are two manuscripts that don't agree with each other. And it's always in minor points. It's, there is no doctrine of the faith whatsoever that is brought into question because of the variances between the manuscript. No doctrine whatsoever is brought into question. And so most of those variants 
are simply spelling errors. And many of them are unintentional errors that took place just as when you were, to, if you were to copy something, you would make an unintentional error. There are errors of sight, errors of hearing, just unintentional errors that naturally take place when people are copying from one thing to another. But none of those affect any doctrine whatsoever. In fact, the reliability is so great that it's, it's been said that, that, that if you look at all of the New Testament, with all of its hundreds of lines, that there are only 40 lines... If you were to add it all up, it only comes out to 40 lines of the New Testament and only 400 words. And typically, it is spelling problems or word order problems. One manuscript might say the Lord Jesus Christ. Another manuscript might say Christ Jesus the Lord. That makes no difference whatsoever. But if one manuscript has a misspelled word, say, you know, any word you could think of, and, and, and maybe it's a name, a proper name that has been spelled one way. Well, that is, if that one misspelling is repeated in 3,000 manuscripts, is counted not as one error, it's counted as 3,000 errors. And so when you look at all the variants, there are 200,000 variants. But those 200,000 variants only pertain to about 400 words. And none of those words impact any doctrine. This is amazing what God has done to preserve his word for us. The closest comparable book that we have to the New Testament in ancient liter literature is Homer's Iliad. It's a little older than the New Testament. It's almost the same length. It's 15,600 lines, whereas the New Testament is 20,000 lines. In Homer's Iliad... There are 764 lines that are in question. In the Bible, 40. There is a 5% textual corruption with the Iliad. And that's based on only a few hundred manuscripts that we can look at. With the Bible, by comparison, there is one half of 1% or less that is questioned with the New Testament. That's amazing. Now... All these manuscripts, and they're all over the Mediterranean world. And they've been classified by scholars in, in different ways. Um, by geography, typically. And there are basically five different classifications. There is the Byzantine, the, the um, um, Western, Neutral, Alexandrian, and Caesarean. And what they do is they put them in families. And so when they find one in the area of Caesarea or the area of ancient uh, Byzantine Empire, they classify them according to geography. And every one of them is viewed as precious, priceless. But let me tell you about the Koran. There are many, there is, did you know there is no original Koran either? See, no, none of these ancient books are the originals. And there is no original Koran. I have a friend that I was in seminary who's gotten his, his doctorate now in, in studying the Koran, in the ancient manuscripts of the Koran. That is all he's devoted to is looking at the ancient manuscripts of the Koran. And he's been given access to, um, to, the, so, to, man, to manuscripts that no other non-Muslim has ever seen. And he's written his doctoral dissertation on this very point. And he says the, the Muslims, the Muslim scholars have done the same thing 
that New Testament scholars have done, and they've classified manuscripts by family groups or by geographical region. But here's the difference. The Muslims, many years ago, said there is only one family group that we think is good. And all the others, they have determined as being bad. And so as soon as they find any manuscript, because just like with the New Testament, manuscripts continue to be discovered. And so that's why it's 6,000. When I was in college, it was 5,000. There are more manuscripts that have been discovered even since I've been in college. And the same thing is true with the Quran. More manuscripts continue to be discovered. But the Muslim scholars say, if those manuscripts are not of this certain type, then we will destroy them. Because, see, they don't want any other manuscript to come about that might question the official reading that they've determined. Whereas we say, bring them on. The more the merrier. Because that's just another check and balance. Another way to check what we have and to see and make sure that it is truly what we've said and that that it it is the Word of God. And so we we keep them all. We never find a manuscript that, goes wor- that we say is worthless. The Muslims destroy them all, except for one narrow segment that they preserve. Totally different philosophy when it comes to the preservation of the manuscripts. There's so much more here. The, the critics approach the New Testament with an anti-supernatural bias. That shouldn't surprise us. They don't believe it's the Word of God. And so they don't start with an assumption that they are handling God's word. Nonetheless, even they acknowledge, as as the speaker here on the video said, even agnostic New Testament scholars acknowledge the reliability of the New Testament as being being faithful to the 99.9% accuracy to the original. Even the critics acknowledge that. There's nothing else like this. But some of these critics... They will say, still can't believe that God said these things. And so if you go to seminary or cemetery, um, they're, depending on how liberal, progressive that those schools are, and many of them are on the progressive liberal side, they will tell you when you approach the Old Testament, for example, there's this theory that they brought up years ago called the documentary theory or the Wellhausen theory. And they got to looking at the, this is just one example, but they got to looking at the, at, at the book of Genesis. And as they were doing their textual analysis of Genesis, some guy saw, Wellhausen, he saw that, that the first few chapters of Genesis, the name for God is different than later chapters. And so this guy said, well, ha, ha, there you go. Two different authors of Genesis. And so you have the, You have Jehovah being used in in some passages, Elohim being used in other passages. And so then they come up and and it began being referred to as the J for Jehovah, E for Elohim, and then P and D, J-E-P-D theory, the documentary theory. And so that was the rage of the seminaries for 40, 50 years. And it has now been totally discredited. But sadly, many seminaries are still teaching it. And many pastors are still being trained in something that is a discredited theory that started with the anti-supernatural bias that Moses could not have written it. It had to be a compilation of many authors. When you come to the New Testament, 
The critics look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they go, they're too similar. And we go, of course they're similar, because they were writing what they saw. And so they were simply writing their own eyewitness accounts. You would expect them to be similar, because they were all witnessing of the same thing. Critics says, no, nah, because those things didn't happen. And so what these guys did, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is they borrowed from another source. It's called the Q source. Nobody's ever seen Q. That's short for another German word, quell. I don't know how that's pronounced in German. We have a lot of Germans here, they can tell you. And it's not how it's pronounced in, in German. But they had this quell source, and they just abbreviated the Q source. And so there is just this assumption that Q exists, and that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all knew about Q, and they were all writing, borrowing from Q, and nobody's even ever seen Q. And that's scholarship? That's smart? And you go, see, there's no reason for this other than they just refuse to believe that the Bible is what it claims to be and what the evidence shows that it is. So we have no reason to be intimidated by those that would question our confidence in Scripture. No reason whatsoever. The evidence is overwhelmingly in support that the Bible we have is, in fact, the Word of God. I started to note that with all these manuscripts that we have, we know exactly where the problems are. This is not guesswork. And so, because you can compare these manuscripts and you go, there is absolute unanimity. On this point, this point, this point, there's only 40 lines of the text all combined where there is any discrepancy. And we know what the discrepancy is. So when I teach this at His Hill, I explain to the students, it's like putting a sentence up on the board, and you say, you know, um, the boy, blank, to the store. Okay? What goes in the blank? And so there's only, then you can look at the, at the and if you didn't know that, if you didn't have, you know, um, your, your elementary school book in front of you, but you had a bunch of different copies from different sources, and you look at it with these different copies, go, well, they, they might have three options. The boy ran to the store. The boy skipped to the store. The boy walked to the store. Well, that's it. But see, we know where the problem is. It's with the verb in the sentence. And we know that it has to be one of these three options. There's not five options. There's not ten options. There's only three options. And as we look at these different manuscripts, we go, there's two things that happen. We go, the oldest manuscripts say ran. We go, the majority of manuscripts say ran. We say the best manuscript said ran. So what goes in the blank? Ran. Okay, it's not all that hard to figure out. But in some instances, the oldest manuscripts might disagree with the majority of manuscripts. So then what goes in the blank? We don't know whether it's ran or skip. Because the oldest might say ran, but the majority might say skip. So what are the New Testament's translators do? They tell you both. And so as you read your New Testament, you'll see there'll be places where there'll be a little number one or a little asterisk next to a word. And if you go over to the margin, they'll say some oldest manuscripts say this or some other manuscripts say this, and they'll tell you what the possible alternate reading could be. 
And so we know exactly where the problem is, and we know exactly what the options are. We just might, know, might not know, in some cases, which one of a very limited number of options we are to choose. But it does not affect any doctrine whatsoever. Let me just give you one simple one that comes to mind. Over in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And it's in verse 4 that there is a, a manuscript question. Okay? 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 and 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now when you read a verse like that, you'll see that there, are, there is no, if you have a good study Bible, there are no annotations here. There is no note that says there is any problem with this verse. So in other words, all the manuscripts are in complete agreement that God's word says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now look at the next verse. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel, and there's a little number one by vessel. Everybody see that? should be in your Bible if you have a study Bible. And you go over to, your, to the passage, I mean, to the margin next to it, look at verse 4, the number 1, and it says, i.e., or that is, body, or possibly wife. Okay? We don't know. So there's some manuscript where we just, it's unclear which one it should be. That each of you know how to possess his body, or each of you know how to possess his wife. We meaning acquiring a wife. And so you have, that's where you have to read the whole thing in its context and see which is the better way to look at this. Because vessel is an ambiguous word. Is it in reference to your own body or is it in reference to your wife? And so we have to look at the context to make that determination. There are places like that in the New Testament. But again, no doctrine is brought into question and we know exactly what the alternative readings are. It has to be this or that. Usually there's only two options. In a few rare cases, it might be three, might be four. But again, we know exactly what the options are. We know exactly what we're dealing with. We have every reason to have supreme confidence in Scripture. There are two passages of Scripture where longer sections are in question. And they are in, in, the, in the Gospel of John and in the Gospel of Mark. So looking at the Gospel of John, John chapter 7, the last verse, verse 53, to chapter 8 and verse 11. Just very quickly here. I feel like that, it, you know, I, I need to bring this up because somebody, somebody else might say, well, there, what, yeah, I know what your preacher said, but it didn't make sense with what I'm reading here, okay? So look at, at, at chapter 7, the very last verse, in a, in a study Bible, will begin with, with a bracket, okay? And then a number one. And then if you go to verse 53 in your margin, it says, John seven fifty three to eight eleven is not found in most of the old manuscripts. Okay, so that's an entire paragraph. And so that's John 7, 53 to John 8, 11. And at the end of 8, 11, you can see the other closed bracket. So what goes in between the bracket? The story of the woman caught in adultery. 
Most ancient manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts, do not contain this section of Scripture. It probably should not be in our Bible. Okay? That is not to say this didn't actually happen. Because we read this and we can see Jesus would have done exactly this. It, it, it feels like this is what Jesus would have said and done, right? But the manuscript evidence doesn't support it. So why is it in our Bible? Well, because nobody wants to cut anything away from Scripture that could potentially be Scripture. And so the translators have included it with the notation. The most, of the most of the oldest manuscripts simply don't contain this portion of Scripture. For example, here's a list of problems with this passage. Just mention a couple of them. The passage in question does not appear in the oldest and most reliable Greek manuscripts. Secondly, no Greek writer comments on this passage until the 12th century. Third, its style does not fit the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. Another point, the earliest known manuscripts to contain it, the earliest known manuscript to contain it is Codex D in the 5th to 6th century. And there are much older manuscripts that just simply don't have it. And another point, many of the manuscripts that have included it have marked it with an obelisk, thus indicating it to be spurious. So some of the, the, the manuscripts that do have it, many of them have a little mark next to it says, and where the, trans, the, the copyist is saying, we believe this portion does not belong here. But they didn't dare take it out because they're dealing with Holy Scripture. And, but see, this is where sometimes things would get inserted, but there's such disagreement. They're not being supported by the rest of the manuscripts. They, weren't, they just weren't even kept because it's clear they shouldn't be there. This one has so much emotion behind it that the Bible publishers and translators don't dare exclude it. Would you buy a Bible that didn't have the story of the woman caught in adultery? No, oh, that's not the real Bible. Somebody's cut that out. And so, it, and so because of the emotional um, investment that we have in this story, it continues to be published. And this, again, is not to say that Jesus didn't do this. It's simply to say the manuscript evidence doesn't support it. Mark, the last chapter of Mark, is very similar. So you go back... And, and again, if you have a, your, your Bible, some Bibles today do not include what's called the longer ending of, bar, of Mark. Some, many, not many, but, but some of the modern translations, Mark chapter 16 ends at verse 8. It probably all should end at verse 8. And you'll see at verse 9, there's again another bracket. Everybody see that? And that bracket goes all the way down to the end of verse 20. That section is, is, is unlike anything else in the book of Mark. It's very different in style and in vocabulary. It probably, and again, does not have ancient manuscript support. So it says these are just some problems with it. These verses, 9 to 20, are lacking in many of the oldest and most reliable Greek manuscripts. Number two, many of the ancient fathers show absolutely no knowledge of these verses. And then when it comes down to just doing a technical analysis of it, as Bruce Metzger noted, that none of the possible endings for Mark, and there are actually four possibilities. The New American Standard just has one of the four. 
none of them commend themselves as being original. And because of the limited textual evidence, meaning very few ancient manuscripts, because of the apocryphal flavor, what does he mean by that? It says in this passage that if you handle snakes, then it won't hurt you. If you drink poison, you won't die. There's nothing else in the New Testament like that. And so it just doesn't fit with the rest of Scripture. And the non-Markan words and style. Specifically, this one paragraph, 19 to 20, contains 17 words that are not found anywhere else in the Gospel of Mark. There's pretty strong evidence that the end of Mark ought to be verse 8. Now that's an abrupt ending, and it doesn't even mention the resurrection of Christ. That's okay. That is the way, the most reasonable thing to say is, that is the way God intended for this book to end. Just abruptly. Now, no doctrine of Scripture is brought into question. This doesn't, this doesn't invalidate what I've been saying about the trustworthiness of Scripture. This actually complements it. Because, again, you see that, that, the, that the translators of Scripture would err on the side of inclusion rather than exclusion. And when they include something that they are not sure about, they give it with notation that there is not good ancient manuscript support for this passage. So there is nothing in Scripture that really is up for question. We have in our hands truly the Word of God. It is amazing what God has done. Now, so much more we could talk about. We're out of time. But as I, just, as I, as I have with each of the topics of bibliology, I wanted just to stand back and say, Lord, there is no truth that you intend to be merely academic and intellectual. Truth is meant to impact us personally. So how would the truth of the preservation of Scripture impact us personally? Because it should. If it is true that God has not only inspired His Word, but He has preserved His Word. And I believe with all my heart that both of those things are true. God inspired His Word... And God has preserved His Word. Well, how should that impact me personally? And I believe that it comes down to what I'm calling the doctrine of preservation. And the doctrine of preservation does not, is not limited to only our Bible. It's, it, it applies to everything God does. I've talked about this one time before. That the Bible indicates to us that the works of God are eternal. So it should not surprise us that if the Bible is the work of God, and it is, that we still hold in our hands today the work of God. It is not going to pass away. Jesus said that heaven and earth will pass away before the smallest letter of what he has given would pass away. It is the eternal word of God. It will always be the Word of God. We are not going to have an amended Bible when we step into heaven. That's amazing to me. But it's true. When we step into heaven, we are going to have a Bible that is virtually identical to what we have in our hands today. Because we know 
This Bible is 99.9% true to the original and the tenth of a percentage. We know where, that, where those questions are. We know what the options are for that half a percentage point of difference or one-tenth of a percentage point of difference. We know. And so when God says, here's your Bible, we're going to go, you're going to look for all of eternity trying to find out where the, pro- where the problems were. Because it's, I mean, this is basically what happened when we had the Old Testament, the Masoretic um, Old Testament that we had was not very old. And when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, we found these caves full of ancient manuscripts that were a thousand years older than any other manuscripts we had. And so Old Testament scholars were going, oh, now we're going to get, it's all going to be exposed for how unreliable our Bibles are. Nothing like that happened. It only confirmed the reliability of our Bibles. Because they're looking at it and they're going, this reads virtually exactly the same. There was only 5% where there was any question between the texts that are a thousand years older than each other. And there's only a 5% variation. And once again, that was mainly word spelling and not a single doctrine was brought into question. So we'll be in heaven and God says, I want you to read your Bible. Just like you're supposed to be doing. And you're going, which Bible? And God says, the Bible you've been reading. It is the word of God. Absolutely. God has preserved his word. God is preserving this world. Scripture tells us that Christ created this world. Scripture tells us that Jesus is holding it together. He is sustaining it. Scripture tells us that nothing is going to destroy this world. Global warming is not going to destroy this world. Nuclear bombs are not going to destroy this world. Because of the doctrine of preservation. What God creates, God sustains. And there is nothing on earth, no power on earth or by Satan himself can undo what God has done. And God's word is going to endure forever. God's world is going to endure. Even where Peter talks about the destruction of the elements, many scholars believe he is not talking about the annihilation of the earth. He's talking about a remaking of the earth. Our own lives. God created us. Jesus says, you should not fear the one who can destroy your body. But you should fear the one who can destroy your soul. There is no power on earth or below earth that can take away what God has created. There are people can kill us, but nobody can destroy your soul and your spirit. That's a fact. That is the doctrine of preservation. And the same is true for our salvation. It is the work of God. And just as the scripture is not going to pass away, the world is not going to pass away, you are not going to pass away, we are going to live for eternity because we are the work of God. Either an eternal separation or eternal union with God, but we will exist for eternity. Because God's works don't come to an end. And the same is true for our salvation. So when I look at, the, at how God has preserved his word, 
it gives me confidence that God will preserve me as well and this world. We're in God's hands. And if there has ever been a book in this world that, has, that, that the enemy has sought to destroy, it is the Bible. He doesn't have a chance. It is not going to be destroyed. You cannot be destroyed. Your body can be killed, but you will continue on. And your salvation is absolutely certain and secure because it is the work of God. And what God does, God keeps. He sustains. He preserves. And that's why I had us read from John 10. His sheep are in his hands. And no one snatches them out of my hand. You're in my hand. You're in the Father's hand. And we are one. That passage in John 10 says. It is about the preservation, the sustaining grace, the commitment of Jesus Christ to each one of us. You cannot come out of the hand of God. Earlier in the passage, Jesus says, I am the door. It's the same idea. In the ancient world, there was no door on a sheepfold. It was just a gap. There would just be a stone hedge or sometimes a, a, a hedge of thorns. And, and where the sheep went in and out, there was no door. Literally, the shepherd was the door. And at night, he would lie down in that gap. And the only way for a wolf to get in was over his body. And it wasn't going to happen. And again, it speaks of the sustaining, preserving commitment of the shepherd to his sheep. So he says, I'm the door. Nobody's getting in through me. And then I'm the good shepherd. You're in my hand. And no one will snatch you out of my hand. It is the doctrine of preservation. Everything that God has made, He sustains and He keeps. And no power in hell or on earth is going to undo what God has done. Amen? Amen. Close us in prayer.